My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on Pros and Content, Anda speaks with Gaston Vanetti, the SVP of brand for Cox Communications. When Gaston joined almost five years ago, he joined a huge company with a great product, great culture, but almost no brand recognition. He talks with Anda about how he's elevated and differentiated the Cox brand in the years since, using content to tell stories in a compelling way, collaborating on that content with teams that span the globe, and the importance of having a good boss. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Pros and Content. Um, today, I'm excited to welcome Gaston Vanetti, who is the SVP of Brand at Cox Communications. Welcome, Gaston. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Gaston, we're obviously in the middle of a crisis, and I want to jump in and talk a bit about how you guys are thinking about that and how the marketing team is responding to it, especially from a brand standpoint. But before we jump into that, I would actually love for you to share with the audience a little bit about your background, because it's very uh, kind of varied. You've you've spent quite a few years at Unilever, then you went to New World Rubbermaid, and now you're with Cox. I would love for you to share, um, as you're talking us through your career in particular, how have you seen the role of content play and evolve in these different categories, but also over time? Okay. The um, So I was born in Argentina, grew up there. Um, I uh, worked in a number of companies there. S- some of the, you know, one of the first ones that I worked in was Telefonica Internacional. That's the largest um, telecommunications company in the world, I think, um, based in uh, Europe, but all over Latin America. I worked in a number of other companies. Um, and at some point, I worked at Unilever uh, there. After I did my MBA at London Business School, I got recruited out of there to Unilever. I uh, worked there for a couple of three years in their food business. Then I bought a share in a small agency uh, at a time where uh, there, there was a very specific opportunity around direct marketing in Latin America when the post offices got privatized and they started actually working. Um, so we built a little direct marketing operation. We sold that direct marketing operation to the Dio Burnett Group. And I came to the U.S. Um, here in the U.S., I got rehired by one of my former bosses at Unilever. Uh, and I worked uh, for a number of years in the Dove brand, um, which was an awesome experience. It's At that time, we started the uh, Real Beauty campaign that most people would be familiar with. Uh, and uh, one of the starting moments of the Real Beauty, we had the theory of what we wanted to do with Dove and Real Beauty um, and the idea of um, presenting ourselves uh, against the beauty industry and uh, indicting the beauty industry and the narrow idea of what's beautiful that the beauty industry was selling. And uh, we had the theoretical idea, but we didn't actually mm. come with an execution for about a year and a half. We tried, and, and although it worked in theory, it was very hard to come up with the right execution until one of our teams in Canada came up with uh, the Evolution video. Some people will remember it. It was a video that showed 
how a regular looking woman was made to look beautiful through uh, digitalization and, and all sorts of edits on her photograph. And it's pretty obvious today, but at the time, a lot of people didn't yeah. know that that's how women look beautiful in magazines and, and beauty ads. That was the first that I'm aware of, the first viral video ever. Yeah, I remember this video. I think I was in Romania or really early in college, but it, it definitely, I remember just feeling a lot better about myself after seeing that video. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so, so that was, a, the, I suppose, the first piece that now retrospectively I understand to be a piece of content right. um, that, that I came across in my teams. Huh. And for me, the observation is we were the global team. We had an idea of what we wanted, what story we wanted to tell. Uh, but we had teams all over the world trying to execute against that story. And it was a team in Canada that came up with the idea. Um, so so uh, a very centralized idea of what the story was and a very decentralized um, concept on how to produce uh, the content. And of course, we weren't talking about content at the time. Yeah. What were you calling it, actually? Were you just calling it a video? A video. That's we, it? We, we, we made a video yeah. and it was a... Um, file and a YouTube video. And a, lo a lot of virality happened through YouTube. And a lot of the sharing happened with actual files being huh. shared. <laughs> um, so, but, but and we didn't think about it as content. We thought it was one way to bring to life the story. We weren't clear how that was going to get distributed and how people were going to see it. Right. There you go. This is how it got uh, shared. The next nice hit that we had is a team in Germany came up with a way to talk about a firming lotion. Um, by uh, taking the picture, again, something that seems obvious today, nobody had done it at the time. Uh, they they used models that look like actual women with actual curves. Um, and they took a picture of all these women in underwear. And uh, and, and this was a regular app. And uh, and the idea is, is a firming lotion that's tested in real curves. Uh -huh. um, I like that. And that was regular advertising. But really what flew was all the PR around that uh, regular advertising. And then the team in England uh, decided themselves, all women in the marketing team in England, to wear uh, white underwear and take a picture of themselves <laughs> and use that picture as a PR picture when they released uh, the ad in, in the UK. Um, and that went viral too. Again, we didn't understand that that was content. We didn't call it content. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but, but that's what it was and that's how it worked. And... Um, and again, we understood in the global team sitting in New York what story we wanted to tell. But the people that figured out how to tell the story were other teams in other parts of the world um, trying to execute and against a very clear vision of, of what the story needed to be. That makes sense. Um, so that was Unilever many years at uh, Dove, uh, worked at uh, Vaseline, a number of other businesses. Worked a little bit on the food business, then worked again on the deodorant business, so Axe and, and Dove and Degree and other brands like that. <clears throat> and then the um, number two guy at Unilever moved to Atlanta to take over a company in Atlanta called Newell Rubbermaid at the time and brought a small team of people to do um, pretty much a turnaround job. And I came with that team. Uh, worked for Newell, now called Newell Brands, for about three years. And then my boss, former uh, Unilever guy, recruited me uh, for Cox Communications. 
And how did the transition to Cox Communications feel like? Was it um, different after so many years in the CPG realm? I have one story that I think it's a, a phenomenal. I have a boss that's unbelievably good. I, I had never met a leader like that before. And uh, the first day uh, that I showed up, he took me out to lunch. And he said, uh, this is a very complicated industry. You bring skills that are unique to this industry, but there's so much that you don't know about the industry. I don't expect you to do any material contribution to the company for the first six months. You have six months to figure out what needs to be done. And that had never happened to me before. I, I, I think I walked into every job with the expectation that you would have impact in the first couple of weeks. Um, he gave me a long runway to understand the business and to gain credibility in the company. You know, Cox Communications is a and chiefly an internet provider. So formerly a, a TV cable company, but uh, chiefly an internet provider. We have three main services. We provide uh, broadband. We provide um, typical cable TV service, and we provide home automation and home security. And uh, all those businesses were businesses that I did not understand. Uh, the company is very complex, and it took me many months to be useful. And I think that uh, one of the reasons why this has been so far a phenomenally good ride for me is that I didn't feel pressed to take positions in the first months where I had no idea what I was doing. Right, because then if you if you have to take a position at the onset, then you're stuck defending that position. Uh, exactly. You spend then the next three years um, trying to prove that you were right in the first right, three months, right. which is nuts. I had, you know, different... If, if I move from a CPG to a CPG, that's easy. I've done it before. Uh, that's clear. And also, I'm being hired to use a skill set that's a skill set that everybody else has. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm not, I wouldn't be expected to bring terribly new ideas. And joining a company like Cox is very different. I am supposed to bring very new ideas. I have a very different background from everybody else. Uh, but then take your time and understand the business first before you put any ideas on the table. And, and my boss created this runway uh, for me to, uh, to not do anything stupid in the first few months uh, that I had to spend the next few years defending. I really like that. I might even use it with some of the team. I think it's such an important uh, perspective, especially for someone senior who you really want to bring on board and make sure they have a contribution over the course of many years. It just really sets them up for success. So I I like that idea. Um, I'm curious, as you transitioned into this new space, uh, technology, telecom, um, what did you notice? I mean, bringing it back to content. by by the time you joined Cox, this was you know 100% a category, potentially even a buzzword. Um, what was the role of content? And I know your title says SVP brand, but what was the role of brand and what was the interplay between brand and content when you joined? And how have you evolved that since you, since you joined, which I think it's been, what, three and a half years or so? Uh, close to five years now. Um, oh, five, f- four and a half years, right, when I was looking, yeah. So I think it'd be fair to say that, and this is in many ways the way my boss put it when he hired me, the company had a name, but it didn't have a brand. Hmm. So, so it had a name and it had a logo. Uh, there wasn't, it had a very strong culture, but there wasn't a clear 
expression of this is how we want to be seen by uh, our customers. And in this way, we're different from other products out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so very strong culture, a, a very well-known company, phenomenally good product, but not a brand, no meaning uh, in, in the brand Cox, uh, which is rare for a very big company. You know, the, the, the Cox brand is an almost $13 billion brand. Uh, so it's a huge business mm. uh, with a massive marketing budget, most of it dedicated to strictly performance marketing, what was understood to be performance marketing five years ago, um, a, a huge presence in TV with a phenomenally good return on investment on that presence. Uh, so so it's a, it was a brand name rather than a brand. Um, and a marketing operation that was run mostly directed to short-term sales. And at that, phenomenally successful. This is a company that has done very, very well. It's very well managed, has uh, extremely good performance relative to the industry. Mm. So there was no urgent need to change that. On the other hand, the although we continue to have a product that's superior to the product of our direct competitors, the superiority gap is narrowing as other companies improve their networks and, mm -hmm. and improve their service. So, and, and the company saw this, my boss saw this, and his thinking is today we can win by force of media and outstanding product. That's not going to be enough five years from now. So we need to start thinking about our brand as a real brand. And, and that was... I think his thinking when he chose to bring somebody from Unilever who's more schooled in the idea of you know how a brand works and and taking good care of a brand and developing a brand and start we started the product brand positioning from scratch. Mm, uh, wow. Which is like a dream yeah. for somebody you especially with a big marketing company. budget. <laughs> Man, the you know, you, you're at Unilever and you're a cog in a huge machine. Right. You can't make big mistakes because everybody knows how things should be done. Uh, there's a manual for every, everything. Uh, people look over your work. Uh, so so it's, it's, your, your work is everyone's work. Um, you spend years and years training yourself so that one day somebody can give you a multi-billion dollar brand and tell you how do we position this brand and how do we move it forward. So, so for me... I feel I spent my whole career preparing for this job. Sounds extremely exciting to to be given essentially a greenfield, just a license to invent a brand that already has great discipline in the business, great revenues, a great technology. Um, how did you think about the initial efforts? And I'm even more curious for an organization that was so heavily focused on performance marketing. How did you get the permission to really take risks as a brand leader? Uh, was it something that came top down or did you have to work on messaging and managing the, the relationship with the CEO, the CFO and everyone else in the leadership team? As a matter of fact, I didn't take risks. And I stand by that approach. This is a phenomenally successful company. Um, so you don't break what's not broken, mm. but it made sense to prepare it for the future. So I took time. I was super thorough with research at every step. 
starting from mapping all of the brands in the market, understanding what was the right place for us to position ourselves relative and differently from other brands in the market. We tested, retested, and super validated that positioning. By the time that we had the conversations with our stakeholders, we were very, very clear on what we wanted to do with the brand. We had piles of evidence that what we were going to do made sense. And we could also tell the story in a very compelling way. Um, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how we brought the story to the rest of the company. But um, for now, let's say we had people crying in the room as we were presenting several times. <laughs> uh, so we had a very emotional way to bring a story that is a very thoroughly researched and validated story. So we took very little risk there. The, um, the transition to becoming the brand that we want to become, it's also a very, very gradual and uh, careful process where we take small steps. We are iterative in some places. We validate every step that we take, um, partly because that's the right thing to do with a business that's very healthy, partly because some of the things that we need to do are things that take a lot of time. It's, uh, we can change the advertising overnight. We can change the law overnight, but we can't change the customer experience overnight. Mm. Uh, the changes that we need to do in the customer experience, the changes that we're doing in the customer experience are profound and they take literally years. So, uh, and they have to be consistent with what you're seeing from a brand standpoint, right? It made no sense to go in advertising and say, uh, this is a brand that we are. And then you have an experience dealing with us that, that, has nothing to do with that. Yeah, and that makes a lot of maybe sense. Maybe it makes sense. I'll, I'll tell you what the positioning is and, and that may help frame yeah. all of that. Um, so the way we think about our brand is, the context is we've never been as connected as we are today. We have, you know, you and I are connected at the same time over the a phone and you know, the computer and we're doing Zoom and, mm -hmm. and I have a, you saw my Peloton that's connected <laughs> to thousands of people that are doing Peloton at the same time. Um, I have a watch that counts a miserably low number of steps that I take every year <laughs> and then pushes that information off to people that I don't even remember who they are and I probably don't care about anymore. Connection is everywhere. There's so much. And yet we don't feel more connected. We feel less mm -hmm. connected. Mm -hmm. There's something about the way that we use connections that isn't making us any less lonely, any more connected. Somewhere in the process, connectivity took over connection and uh, productivity took over humanity and, and real connection. And we don't think that's okay. Um, and we think that as the enablers of many of those connections, we have an okay right to have a conversation about that. Huh. We think that life, families, communities are much better when we create more moments of real human connection, those moments that remind you who you are, that, that you show up fully present, uh, that, that you show up in a way that's embracing of the other person. Uh, we think that our lives are better if we have more of those moments. And we think that we have an opportunity to inspire people to have more of those moments, to help people reflect about the way they use connectivity in general, our products specifically, so that they use them in ways that are more deliberately creating moments of human connection. 
Mm. When you decide that you're going to watch TV, you can choose to go up to your room and do it on your own, or you can choose to suggest a show that the whole family may want to watch, and everybody watches it in the in the living room. Uh, when you decide to uh, entertain yourself with uh, your phone uh, and you use our Wi-Fi for that, you can choose to do TikTok or you can choose to call your grandparents. Mm. Um, yeah. And we want to inspire people to think, how am I going to engage with all this connectivity so that I create more moments of real human connection. That's such a beautiful message and such an important one during a crisis like this. Um, and it's inspiring to hear that um, that's how you decided to to bring the life to, to start the brand to life um, by talking about the human connection. I love that. You're hearing me say this, and I'm sure it's easy to see where you take that in advertising and content. Oh, yeah, 100%. But then you have customer experiences. Uh, we can't be that brand and then deal with you transactionally. Right, yeah. So when you show up, when you pick up the phone and call us, it has to feel like the person on the other side of the phone is a real person that's treating you as a real person and not an account number. And yes. that's uh, a lot of the customer experience work that we needed to do uh, to make the experience catch up with the brand. That's such an interesting challenge. And just out of curiosity... I'm assuming you decided to kind of train or retrain a lot of the folks on the customer experience side. Um, how big was that effort? How extensive and over what course of time? Simpler than you would imagine because another thing about this company, this is a company with a very strong, very strong culture. Mm. I worked in nine companies so far. I have never worked in a place that is so caring about its own employees where the employees are so loving uh, of the company, uh, so loyal to the company and so thankful to the company. Mm. The, the, the link between uh, the employees and the company and the employees to each other is very special, unlike any other culture that I've been in. Uh, this is a place where when you show up, people, when you have something to say, people listen and they truly listen. They wait, they don't rush. They're there to understand what you need, uh, that people pay attention to how you're feeling, how you're engaging. Um, so a lot of what we needed to do is turn the culture that we already had on the inside to the outside. So if we can treat our customers the way we treat each other, we're there. And when you have a culture that's strong that way, then you tend to hire people that and, and retain people that are that way. Uh, yeah. So this is the nicest group of people I've ever worked with by it. A lot. That's wonderful. And I, by the way, I can hear the passion that you have for the culture in your voice as well. Like I can tell this is all very, very genuine. It, it, and, and it is true. And, and uh, people that know the company feel that way. Any employee that you call will probably uh, be as passionate as I am about how nice the culture is. The, uh, so it wasn't, people didn't need a lot of retraining. They mm -hmm. just needed a few tools. Uh, a lot of them are technology tools that they need in order to to be the people that they already were uh, to each other, to be those people with uh, with the customer. And a lot of that, you know, I told you about how we went about aligning the organization with uh, this positioning. And a lot of it we did face to face because it makes sense. If you're going to be about human connections, you can't tell people what the positioning is by sending in right. a video over email. A brief. Right? Yeah. So, so my team and I got on, on planes and we went to meetings of 500 people, tens and tens of these meetings, and shared the positioning face-to-face -face, uh, with a lot of the company. 
And after every presentation, we had a line of people to thank us for giving them the positioning that was what the company always had been. Mm. Uh, you know, the way people in the company see it is it's, uh, it's not trying to make the company different. It's trying just to make us the best version of ourselves. It's it's very inspiring to hear of a massive company that has succeeded in creating and maintaining that culture and scaling that culture um, as as time went by. Because I know the company has been around for quite a while as well, and it's bifurcated in a lot of different business units and functions. So that's really refreshing to hear. Um, you talk when you talk about content, when you talk about your culture, the emotion in your, in your voice already comes through, but. You also talk about creating that emotion um, and you sort of celebrate the creation of that emotion. Um, I'm assuming that when it comes to brand and the way you think about measuring the impact of your work, that emotion also is a big part of that. But correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just curious. How do you think about essentially the success or measuring that success, especially when the company was so performance focused and essentially performance marketing is a little bit easier, if you will, to measure? So the company is performance focused and will continue to be performance focused. Again, we run a, a very successful business by being very disciplined. Right. And and uh, for the most part, very performance focused. We're also a very big company and we have uh, strong marketing budgets. So there's enough room to spend uh, enough money making sure that we make our uh, network sustainable and we keep our customers coming and enough money to tell the story that we want to tell this room for both. Um, so the, the process is once we know now what story we want to tell, we take increasingly larger chunks of the marketing budget and we start very small and start telling that story. Um, that's one piece. The other part is which is maybe less exciting to explain, but very important, is how we tell the stories that we were already telling. We always told product stories, and we told product stories in order to reassert our product superiority and drive performance. And we measure the efficacy of those product stories by short-term results for the most part. We also measure other impacts, but chiefly short-term results. Now, I told you what our brand is about. It's about creating, we believe that it's important to create more moments of human connection. When we tell you now the story of our products, we tell it in that context. So we, not, we don't show you our products and how wonderful they are. We show you our products being used in order to create more moments of real human connection so that we continue to measure the efficacy of that ad in short-term sales. So we lose none of the efficacy of that ad in the short term, but at the same time, we start pushing our agenda of uh, long-term brand affinity uh, or brand love. So, so I guess summarizing, there's a big chunk of the investment where we continue to measure it for the short term. We continue to do things for the short term, but we do them in a way that they also push the story of the brand for the longer term. And then we start with a small portion of our budget and we keep increasing that portion of our budget to dedicate it purely to telling uh, a more emotional brand story. Do you, and I'm curious, do you believe that there's a place for 
long-term impact measurement. Um, and I ask this because a lot of the CMOs and brand leaders that I talk to um, don't think that you know measuring a, a piece of content uh, directly with a conversion is necessarily always the best way to go about it because it takes a while, especially for a brand that is unknown to gain not only awareness, but relevance and consideration and favorability and so on and so forth. And you know about this more than I do, but I'm curious, you know, playing devil's advocate, is there a place for some other measures that might be, uh, you know, gathering over time before a conversion can even happen? Yes. And I'll push it a little bit further. There's a place where no measure may be okay. The, I would say that we spend 90% of our money optimizing it for short-term sales, maybe a little less. Then the rest of our spend, we also look at short-term sales, but we optimize um, brand health metrics. And we measure that brand health on a regular basis. And we'll, we'll probably talk more about those metrics. Some of the work that we do, we know when we're doing it, that it's going to be very difficult to prove that it's increasing brand health. It'll take a long time for people to associate us with that work. Uh, and some of the work that we do, candidly, we do it because we believe that it's good to inspire people to have more human connections, whether we sell more internet or not. For that type of work, sometimes we accept that we might not be able to measure and it's okay. Um, we'll, we'll live with that. Um, so, so I think, uh, 90, 95% of what we spend, we can measure very accurately. A lot of it is short-term. Some of it is long-term and some of what we do, we do because we think it's the right thing to do for the brand. And we, uh, trust that that's going to show up in the longer term. And we accept that we're not going to be able to measure it. We might not be able to measure it in our tenure. Um, this is a family owned company that is building a business for generations. I was listening the other day at a panel to the CMO of Bank of America, um, walking people through their work that they did. They, they were number one in the list of most hated companies in America, and they, they've gotten a lot better since. And she said, now after 10 years of being in this new journey, we think we're seeing the effects of the work that we did. Hmm. And, you know, maybe some of the work, that's the mind frame that you have to have. You know, some of the work that I do, I know, will be work that will be enjoyed by another CMO that is an I, uh, that will come one or two generations after me. And that's okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's well said. Um, and yeah, Bank of America is definitely, talk about a brand that really invests in storytelling and, and content. They've been pushing... Um, in building their internal capabilities over the last two to three years. Um, and, and we've been very impressed to see them develop that as a partner. Um, I'm curious, you know, now that we're, we're in this crisis, um, you know, hugging our Pelotons and depending on them for our mental health, um, how has this changed, if at all, the direction of the creative, the direction of the, the media plans, um, and maybe, more specifically, how has it changed the way you think about content internally, the importance of it, uh, where you produce it, and so on? We felt very compelled to step in in a way that we felt uh, was being overlooked by, by 
a lot of media and brands, of course, but mostly media. I think that we think that right now, a lot of people are paying attention to the way they connect to each other. Now that we can't see each other live, we're being um, a lot more deliberate about scheduling Zoom calls uh, with our groups of friends and, uh, and uh, calling each other and doing all sorts of... And, and you see in media how people are being very creative in finding ways to stay in touch with each other. Uh, so in many ways, for a brand that believes that life is better when you have more moments of human connection, I would argue that people have not paid more attention, more deliberate um, attention to how they connect than they do today. So it, I think it created a maybe more sensitivity to what we have to say. Mm -hmm. There's a particular group of people that we felt very strongly about, and that's old people. Uh, so we, uh, we think that old people are a segment of the population that uh, relies maybe m relatively more than others do uh, on more old technology connection. They may not be as used to connecting with their friends over Zoom, for a lot of senior people, their uh, social life is around things like uh, their their local senior center, where they go every day and they take Zumba classes and they do painting and they do all sorts of wonderful things and they see their friends face to face. And overnight, those senior centers shut down and you have um, senior people sitting at home alone all day, watching TV that's telling them that uh, they may die, right? It's, it's, mm. it's, it's yeah. particularly tough uh, for a large group of old people. And we felt we could do something about that. That's something that people weren't paying enough attention to, and we could do something about that. And the way we step in is the way we normally do these things. We call them acts, right? So we, d we don't create a campaign. Um, we did that too, but, but the important thing is we don't create a campaign. We try to go out there and do something uh, in, in the real world. And then let people know what we did and hope that somebody will be inspired by what we did. So we're now working with uh, senior centers, helping them with technology and uh, hardware and, and connectivity in order to take their activities virtually so that the Zumba class can get together in the senior center online. Uh, so that awesome. uh, the seniors that are sitting at home can turn the TV off and have their painting classes. So we make sure that they have the, the materials to have the painting class and we make sure that they have the computer and if they need help uh, connecting to the class, we'll, we'll figure out a way to help them connect to the class and we put the teacher online and we make sure that they can see their friends and they can have their painting class online, um, et cetera. So, so we start with one senior center, figure out how to make this work and then expand it to as many senior centers as we can, as fast as we can um, so that we help um, senior people reconstruct those connections. The other thing is we want to inspire people to make one call a day. And that's another thing, another act that we're stepping into. We do that with our own employees. So we recruited uh, a number of volunteers uh, in our company and they committed to pair with one um, senior center member that is now back at home and give them one call every day, uh, just to check in, uh, just to make sure they're all right and to give them a little 
social interaction. And, uh, you know, it's like a pen pal. So spend a little time connecting with one person. And uh, we think that if we do that and we let people know that we did that, more people will do that. And it's our, our way to contribute. So that's a couple of examples of things that we're doing right now. And in terms of to, the, uh, the marketing side of things, in terms of the content that you're producing or, or not producing, we've seen a lot of other brands basically say, we're going to lean in and talk about the things that we can do for people and how we can help them. And obviously you're you're talking about the things you're actually doing, but I'm curious, are you telling any stories around this or have you decided to just let the actions talk for themselves? So these acts that we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to show them. Uh, we think that we've done these things in the past and, and people carry that message. It doesn't require a lot of uh, our effort for this to be known. Uh, and then later I can tell you some of the work that we've done in the past. So that that's from a sort of highest, more um, storytelling level. Of course, as a company, we're doing a number of things to uh, make uh, this crisis as easy as possible on, on our own employees and our customers. And we talk about that as well. We just don't make a lot of advertising about it because that's not the kind of company that we are. We just go off and do it. So we... We've taken a, we've made a lot of changes in the way we operate in order to keep our employees safe, mm -hmm. uh, both our retail employees and the employees that are out there maintaining our network and and keeping our customers connected. Um, we've also provided a free internet service for uh, underserved students to make sure that everybody has a connection and they can complete their school year online, uh, regardless of the income of their families. We've um, Done a number of programs to help our customers make sure that if they can't meet their bill, they don't get disconnected, etc. We're just not, I suppose, other companies that I've worked in would have made many TV ads and would have gone doing TV ads about that. That's not how we go about this. Mm, that makes sense. Um, and I think it's admirable that you're really deploying your efforts where it matters. It's It's also interesting for us as as we analyze the content that has gone out around COVID. Um, as it turns out, content that is about donations actually doesn't do that well. Um, I think people prefer that you speak with the actions. Um, but what we have seen is that when when you're creating utility content, really just around how do we survive this as remote workers, as families, etc., um, that actually pays off and it works well from both a brand standpoint as well as from a conversion standpoint. Um, I'm curious as, as we, you know, we, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going to add to that. We established a tracker of uh, where people are at through the crisis. As soon as the crisis started, I, I run also the uh, consumer insights team and they put a tracker out there um, to understand many things, including what do customers want to hear from us? Interesting. And, a super, for me, super interesting and surprising insight is by far the number one thing that they want to hear from us and every company is that they're doing right by their own employees and that they're keeping their own employees safe, which we didn't know at the beginning. That's not something that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And we realized that that was super important that we talk about. So, so in our communications to our own customers, we started to be more clear about the many changes that we're doing in order to keep our own employees safe. Um, 
I think it's interesting when you look at what's going on with brands like Amazon, yeah. where, um, you know, on the one hand, the fact that Amazon exists and does what it does is making all of our lives a lot more pleasant. And yet they're going to come up on the other side of this with negative brand momentum because people are very unhappy about how they deal with their own employees. So that's something that happened with Walmart probably a decade ago. Yeah. And, and they're doing a lot of good work to correct. Uh, but it was interesting that people identify very quickly with the employees of the companies that provide services to them. Well, I think what this crisis has done across the board, and please tell me if you disagree, is it's kind of accelerated um, what was true before the crisis. So Amazon's never treated their employees well, and I think that was always known. Um, and then there's companies who've had a great culture, and I think because of that have been able to you know, accelerate the way they're treating their employees during this time. Um, the brands that had purpose and had values attached to them, I think, have been great at uh, maintaining consistency in that department. And the brands who haven't, I think, are scrambling to figure that out. And there's almost like a, an acceleration of the negative backlash that comes with it. Um, I'm curious, have you seen that in, in the work that you're doing? So I told you that we saw the insight, this insight that people first, they want to make sure that our employees are okay. Uh, so I guess that's one way to see it. I, I in general, have agree with your observation. Uh, I think it's, it's fascinating, specifically with a company like Amazon, yeah. that, that makes it their number one priority to do right by the customer. Right. That the customers are telling them, we want you to do right by the employee. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I find it fascinating, right? Um, and uh, and I think that I'm sure you know it's a smart company; they'll figure it out at some point, like Walmart did. That uh, that uh, you know Walmart did amazing things for their shoppers, but the shoppers wouldn't love them until they did better things to their employees, and and you know that put them in a journey. That's a really it's a really good insight. Um. I know we're coming up on time. And so I wanted to ask you one last question. Uh, you've had a really interesting career across, as you said, nine different companies, a few different industries, a lot of different brands, right? Even inside of Unilever, you've worked with some incredible leaders. You are one yourself. So I'm curious, what do you think that the kind of CMO of the future looks like? What skills do they need to have to, to be effective and how has this crisis shaped your answer to that? Even before the crisis, I think that as a practice, we have a lot to worry about. It's, it's very hard to build new CMOs. I feel the CMO tenure is super short, yep. but it's like a game of chairs. We, we're all switching chairs, um, but it's, it's to a great degree, the same people moving around. I think that it's become incredibly difficult to have the total marketing experience for anybody now. I got recruited at Unilever and Unilever made sure that every two years I had a completely new experience. They moved me from local businesses to global businesses, from big global advertising to trade and operations. I, I was a general manager of a business. They, they moved me around to make sure that I was a complete player. Um, so by the time that I became more senior, I had to learn the, the marketing stack and I had to learn a lot more technology, but overall I had the total view of what managing a brand is like. I think very few people get that experience anymore. Most people make their careers within a function. So they're, mm. they're good with data and they run the data stream. 
they're good with telling stories and they work in a content marketing or they run a creative operation. Um, and hardly anybody's getting rotated to get the full experience. So I think that uh, we are okay creating CMOs of small companies that have a very narrow set of tools that they work with, but we are going to have a problem uh, with CMOs of big companies uh, when we try to elevate people that have had much narrower career paths. Uh, so I, I don't know how that's going to get solved. Um, because I don't see companies investing in the kind of white career path that they invested for people in my generation. Well, I think potentially the way to do it, especially for those listening, I think is to, as opposed to try to become a complete specialist in one area and kind of leaning into what you already know you're good at, is making active career choices that are going to put you outside of your comfort zone so that you can learn those new skills, even if it happens across several different companies. That's absolutely true. And I think that many times many times requires that you accept a path that is lateral and not upwards yeah, exactly. in order to gain those experiences. Uh, if you allow your path to go up fast, you are at the risk of now becoming a phenomenally good person at one thing, and then you'll never get the rounded experience. Uh, so I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great advice to end the conversation on. Thank you so much, Gaston, for joining. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, to hear from a leader who's so experienced and thoughtful. Um, and I hope you join us again soon. I'd be very happy to. We didn't get to talk much about content. I know, I know. We have to do part two, <laughs> and we will. Okay. Well, very nice meeting <laughs> cool. you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pros and Content. And thanks to our guest, Gaston Venetti, for bringing us such amazing insights especially the point about the value of not taking huge risks when you don't need to. As he notes, improving with small, iterative steps and being prepared for the future is what's important. If you'd like to hear more content on the pros and cons of making content or being a better storyteller in today's world, please head to prosandcontent.co. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future topics, you can email onda at prosandcontent.co. See you next time on Pros and Content.